Hey folks, if you've seen any of the great merch we have lately, we've got Witch Police shirts, we've got bags, we've got more gear on the way. That's all made by our friends at Divine Shirt Company. Whether it's screen printing or embroidery, heat press vinyl or graphic design, Divine Shirts is the place to go for your band merch. They've been doing some of the best stuff from the best bands in Winnipeg and beyond. And if you're looking to get some merch made, head over to divineshirtcompany.ca or follow them on Instagram and tell them which police radio sent you. One of our colleagues, Sam Thompson, who, um, if you saw him, you'd sort of right away assume he was a hippie. Get up off your ass and get up on the podcast! Welcome to Witch Police Radio. Uh, here I am again in the basement on the internet, which is uh, hopefully changing soon. I mean, when I first did this show for the first like seven years of it, I was meeting musicians in person and, and having conversations face to face. The internet is kind of the uh, the compromise now due to COVID, but it looks like maybe things are, are turning the corner. Um, but the guest on this episode is someone who is new to the show. Um, as regular listeners might know, I've been trying to broaden my horizons a bit. It's very easy for me to sort of stick with the genres that I'm super, super comfortable with and, and just do that forever. But I do listen to a lot of jazz, and I've been venturing more into interviewing jazz artists on the on the podcast recently. So here's another one. I think that um, people are enjoying them, so I'm I'm happy to kind of delve more into that world. And uh, the guest on this episode is uh, well, you know what? To start this off, why don't you introduce yourself and maybe give a bit of background because I, I you don't necessarily have the same um, history as a musician as a lot of the local artists I talk to. Yeah, well, my name's John Gordon, and I'm originally from Staten Island, New York. I'm in my ninth year here in Winnipeg teaching at the University of Manitoba Jazz Program. And uh, we were just talking before we went on, or, on on air about the fact that you had Jocelyn Gould and Will Bonas, yeah. who are friends of mine. Will and I teach together, and Jocelyn was a former student. Um, and, um, yeah, so, I mean, I'm actually in my 29th year of, of teaching oh, wow. uh, jazz at a college level, but uh, my ninth year uh, here in Manitoba. And, uh, yeah, so, I mean, one of the things that was really nice when I first came up and, and uh, was, was getting to know about Winnipeg, it's, a, it's really a great cultural city. That I love the symphony. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of, um, yeah, it's just, just a lot of things that, that uh, a lot of pluses culturally to the city for sure, and I love the uh, all of the uh, the classical and, and jazz musicians around the, the music program. You know where I teach, so. So you're obviously, you know, people who are are in the music school here that they're, they're going to recognize you. People in the jazz scene will know who you are. How did you like? Why Winnipeg? How did you find this this spot on the map when you first started teaching here? I was invited to uh, to apply for the job. I came up and, and interviewed, and they hired me. You know, and. Uh, there's some very talented jazz musicians uh, that have come through that uh, that have been a part of the program. Uh, Derek Gardner is currently a part of the program. Quincy Davis was here when I first got here. Mm-hmm. He's a very accomplished jazz drummer and composer. He is now at uh, North Texas State. It's a very famous jazz program. George Colligan, brilliant keyboard uh, pianist, uh, uh, keyboard keyboardist, pianist, and multi multi instrumentalist. Actually, was here for a couple of years. Jimmy Green, a yeah. really great saxophonist, was uh, at the school before I was here. So um, there's a great tradition of, of, of um, some high-level players 
so I was really thankful to be able to come through and, and uh, be a part of the tradition. Does this seem, or did this at the time, I guess, seem like the place where the type of city where jazz could flourish? Because, I mean, you know, we're fairly isolated. Um, I think outside of, you know, maybe the prairies, no one really gives much of a second thought to Winnipeg. Um, aside from maybe the art scene here, I think is maybe the sort of um, what people know about it besides the negative stereotypes of the cold and the mosquitoes hmm. and all that, right? Hmm. Well, it's funny the mosquitoes haven't been as bad. A lot they of times, yeah. In this, yeah, they haven't been as bad in recent years. Um, I, I heard about the reputation, and even like folks I know, like in Minnesota, would talk about, "Oh, the mosquitoes are terrible." So I'm not sure they haven't been as bad in recent years. I'm away parts of the summer. My kids are they're grown now, but they're in New York. Yeah. So and I tour and things like that in non-COVID times. So. Um, no, but I, I do feel that Winnipeg uh, can be and really has been a place where uh, jazz has flourished to an extent. And it has been a jumping off point for a lot of people that are having great careers. Curtis Noah, Jocelyn yeah. Gould, Joanna Majoko, um, a lot of great, um, you know, people that are that are doing wonderful things have, have started out here. Luke Selleck is playing with a lot of great people. So, yeah. And, and you look at the people that are teaching in our program, like, Will Bonas and, and uh, Carly Epp and Carl Kohut, they came through the school. Uh, Carl and Carly did their master's degrees uh, in New York at uh, Manhattan School of Music in Juilliard. And so, you know, and, and they spent some time in New York. And so, as I tell people when I was in New York, like it's an important place to come and spend some time in, but you don't have to spend your whole life there, right? Right, right. You don't need to be there 30 or 40 years. And to the extent that you can go to a place like that or, or maybe to a place like New Orleans, which still has a you know, which is a very important cultural yeah, yeah. city with our music. Um, you know, there's things you can go there from being in the culture for some time and being immersed in that in that environment and then bring back to places like Winnipeg or wherever you, you were from originally that's going to uh, enhance the music scene there. And that inspires the next generation of players too who want to want to follow in those footsteps, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So you have a new record that's that's about to come out, and uh, I, I definitely want to talk about the album, but just before we get into that, what is your, I mean, in a non-COVID year, what is your kind of division of time between, because you're still making music, you're still performing, you're still recording, how do you divide that with the teaching aspect of things? Well, it's funny, I, I, I sometimes joke with my students that um, when I was, particularly by the time I got to college, I always would make these lists, you know? And I'd have to practice a certain amount of time every day to feel like I was a good person. You know, like I did four hours of it, you know. So I've got, I've got kind of, you know, uh, two or three hours a day I like to work on music. I like to do something physical and, and be outside, walk, bike, yeah. you know, do something. Because um, I feel like you've got to kind of, particularly with what we're going through, like you can't just sit inside and be in front of a screen all the time. You've got to get some exercise and some sun, sunlight. Um, teaching, you know, when we're in session as, you know, when, when classes are going, I'd say it's probably 25, 30 hours a week in terms of the actual teaching and the prep and grading and things like that. Um, you know, and, and then just finding that if I can have, you know, two or three hours a day to work on music and do the other things I do as, you know, in in my life, then that's, I, I look for that kind of a, kind of a balance. And if I'm really working on a project, you know, when I was, when we were really working on that, like last fall and the start of this year, then it'd be a lot of other things going on uh, in terms of writing, arranging, yeah, um, and, and all of that kind of, uh, that goes into a recording. 
And then as far as actually uh, playing shows and things like that, obviously, again, COVID has kind of killed that for, for everyone for the last little while until fairly recently. But what is your um, typical, I mean, how much do you get to actually go out and, and perform and tour uh, in the time that you've been a, been an instructor, been a teacher? Well, it's funny because I'm, I'm in the process of doing some writing about that because okay. I'm planning a sabbatical in a couple of years and, and going back and forth with the dean and, and saying, well, this is what I would do in a normal year. So, for example, in 2016, I went, I went to uh, Europe for several weeks. Um, I went to South Korea for two weeks. Okay. I was in California for, I don't know, 10, 12 days. Uh, I do, there's certain things that I go and do in New York. I used to play a club there called the Catano, played at Dizzy's. Um, I used to do a lot of Monday nights at the Vanguard with the Vanguard Jazz Orchestra. I haven't done any in the last couple of years. The last one I did was in 2019, probably. I used to sometimes play with the Mingus Band. They had a steady Monday night at the Jazz Standard. Cool. So basically, you know, I, 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 then in 2017, I went back to Europe. So, I mean... You know, I would I would maybe travel a little bit more than I do if I didn't have my teaching job. But I, I, I it still basically allows me to to uh, tour a good bit um, to go to New York, where I still have a lot of roots, yeah. and um, and do things there. And yeah, so I mean, I think that's kind of the the balance that we try to strike is um, playing in a few places. And and like you said, things have eased up a little bit. So. I did do several gigs and a recording in New York this summer. I was out listening to music, jamming a little bit. Um, And I'm actually playing a gig to celebrate the CD release at the Rachel Brown Theater on October 1st uh, as part of a series with Jazz Winnipeg with with a group of mine. Oh, great. Uh, So, yeah, so things are starting to to normalize to an extent we hope hopefully yeah hopefully by the time this comes out things haven't reversed themselves exactly <laughs> but but yeah no look it's, it's looking good so far for sure Thank you. 
I've been listening to it quite a bit. Uh, I, got, I got an advanced copy of it, and um, I really like it. First of all, it's it's it's, it's a really it's a really good album. But uh, the, the most striking part of it, I think, for me was um, just just the, the very first song and how kind of um, chaotic it is and and discordant and and uh, and noisy it is really. Because I mean, you know, as someone coming from a punk rock background, what initially drew me to jazz was that sort of side of things. When I could, because mm. you know, when I was younger, I had this idea of what jazz was, and it was I think a lot of people do where it's. It's not cool. It's something that is, um, you know, for old people. And and I, I feel dumb about having that opinion now because I, I the more I listen to, the more I, I appreciate it. But that sort of um, kind of uh, raw side of it is really what appeals to me as a listener. What what is the, and the rest of the album doesn't necessarily follow that that song. It's just kind of a really cool statement at the beginning of the record, though, to to start off with something that that um, heavy, really. Well, thank you. Um, you know. Um... The album was recorded here in town. Uh, the the uh, the basis for the record was recorded at Stereo Bus Recording, Paul Yu Studio, uh, with his partner Jen, who's a marvelous artist, and they're they're both really great people and great to work with. Yeah. And um, and so it was um, Julian Bradford on bass, Fabio Ragnelli on the drums, Will Bonas on piano on most of the tracks, uh, and then Jocelyn Gould on on the guitar. So. Uh, now, the other person who was local, uh, actually several people, other local people did it, but they recorded remotely because we, we figured that the only thing we could do safely, uh, the, the five people was the, was the most we felt we could safely get in the studio, right? Okay. And so our, our jazz trumpet professor, Derek Gardner, said, well, I'm already set up to record at home. He's, he had done a couple of projects that way. He said, send me the, the files and the tracks and we're good, you know? So then... Um, also, our jazz guitar prof, Larry Roy, played a solo on one of the tracks. And then I uh, had three recent graduates, uh, Reginald Lewis, who played some tenor, Tristan Martinson, who played some tenor, and Anna Blackmore, who played some bass clarinet. And then in addition, we had John Ellis, who's one of my favorite uh, saxophonists and great bass clarinet player, uh, great Alan Ferber, who's a great jazz trombonist and arranger and composer. He arranged two of the pieces. Cool. I composed all of them. I arranged the rest of them, those two. And then, um, and then we had Orrin Evans guested on a couple of things. So Orrin was in Philadelphia, Alan was in St. Louis. And so what I was thinking with this is that there are certain possibilities that, you know, with every challenge, sometimes there's a, there's a, there's a blessing or a possibility. Yeah. And I thought, what if we just, we play a free improvisation here and I just ask everybody where they are to just, you know, just, just even without hearing it, just, just, I just gave them. I said, I gave, basically asked for three or four little different free improvisations, and that was the one that we used. And oh, cool. all, three of them, all of them were different, actually, in terms of, you know, what I had initiated or suggested. And, um, and we just put it together, and it, and it sometimes, uh, sometimes cacophony can, be, uh, can have its uses, you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it works, uh, for sure. Like, as a, as a piece, it definitely works. And, you know... Um, one of my all-time favorite records is uh, uh, called Word of Mouth by Jaco Pistorius. Okay. And if you're a punk rock guy, like all those rock bass players, like they all worship Jaco. Oh, for sure, yeah. You know? yeah. And uh, so the first piece on that record is called Crisis, and it's also a free improvisation. It's sort of based on this kind of little vibe that he's doing on the bass, and it's kind of like a like a kind of a double-time Latin thing, and there's all these different people that are recording remotely and what, what comes of it is what comes of it. Um, 
And I was kind of imagining something like that. Sometimes if you start with something really in left field, it's like the verse before a standard. It just, it creates something that sets up what's going to follow in a different, you know, it just creates, if, if that piece that was going to follow it was just by itself it would mean one thing. Yeah. But coming after that other texture, it kind of creates a different um, context for it. Well, maybe a, a follow-up question to that then, based on what you just said, is, I mean, we're in a world now where, unfortunately, most people aren't listening to an album start to finish. I feel like jazz might be one of those genres where, you know, the, the, the fan base is maybe more inclined to sit there and listen to something uh, as a full, you know, as a full album start to finish. But how much of your of your record and of your work in general do you plan ahead like that? We're knowing that this, you know, the, the flow of the actual... Um, record itself rather than individual tracks, which is kind of the way that things are going for, for all types of music these days. You know, I, um, I, I try to have a record, have a sense of continuity and some meaning that means something to me yeah. and that I hope does for other people. But what I tend to do is I go in with certain possibilities in mind. Like I could have started with third, the thing was the third or fourth tune on the record. I could have started with, yeah, um, you know, if that free improvisation didn't work quite the way I wanted it to, I could have started the, the record a different way. So sometimes I go in and think, well, I'm, that that piece, Pointillism, was something I had been planning all along, but I, I didn't know how it was going to work. So I was thinking, okay, I'm thinking this could be a nice texture that would set up things that would follow it. But um, another option would be to start with this piece, Dance, that was actually probably the fourth thing on the record or something like right. that, fourth or fifth. Um and really, you know, I, I wrote the piece Stranger Than Fiction, I think, in 2001, and also Havens, because at that time I felt like, I, I'm not going to tell you, I, I, was, uh, I was that prescient that I, I saw the craziness that was going to come almost 20 years later, but I felt like some things that I had taken for granted in terms of the perception of shared reality um, were, uh, were not as I had hoped they were. Right. And I, I, I was a little concerned, you know, and sometimes you see these things in your own personal life, you see it in a community, and then you see it sort of, you know, in the micro and the macro. And, I, and on a number of different levels, I'd say in recent years, I've, I've just looked at like, wow, we do not have shared perception of reality. And yeah, we don't for sure, have, yeah. you know, and so that is a, that's a challenge, you know, and, um, you know, we experience many things internally in, in a personal way, but there are certain things like, that we have to kind of have, have some kind of shared um, perspective and, and response to. Otherwise, we can't really move forward in any kind of positive way. Right. So, and I think, you know, so there's very obvious statements about what we're dealing with in the world and the environment and, and, and the virus and, and all of that. Um, and then just how we treat each other as, as, as human beings and, and trying to find, you know, certain things that I, that to me, it's like, no, you, you don't do that. You do this, you know, but, but it's not, some of those things are not as, uh, as accepted. And sometimes, um, yeah, just, um, I guess that was a big, a big inspiration for the record. And, and I'm a big George Carlin fan. He talked about, he said, you know, I, human humanity is, you know, human beings are really amazing, but I sort of go out to the Oort cloud and I just look at it. I just go along for the ride. I'm in for the entertainment. <laughs> and so sometimes I, I imagined writing a piece called Visiting George at the Oort Cloud. You know, I, 
I may, I may uh, write a piece with that title at some point, but I still feel very invested, you know, and yeah. just, and just very like, no, I can't, I, 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 you know, as, as much as a genius as I think he is. And, you know, one of, one of my heroes in a certain kind of sense, him, Richard Pryor in that world. And, um, no, I think, uh, like you, you, you have to, there's certain things you just have to stay and try to work out, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and, um, so that was, that was some of the things I was kind of thinking about when I was writing that music. Thank you. 
Well, it's interesting. It's always interesting to hear the background, especially with instrumental music, right? Because, I mean, if you're, you know, if I'm talking to someone who has a, a vocal album, obviously, not always, but usually the, the messaging behind the songs and, and the meaning is, if not clear, it's at least there to kind of read into. Whereas instrumental mm. music, you're, you're really getting whatever you, each individual person is getting something totally different from it, most likely, because there, mm-hmm. there isn't that sort of obvious hook to, to what, it, what it's about, right? And I think that's very valid. I think, you know, just the same way, like, I might have a concept in mind going yeah. into the studio or going onto a gig. And then great musicians come, and they have a different energy and a different conscious and unconscious thought that, that, that emerges. And then, and then, like, what's going to happen is something that I could never have been, could never have conceived of. And so it just expands what's possible. I think it's the same thing with listeners, you know. Yeah. Um, I think Duke Ellington said something like, there are only two kinds of music, you know, music that speaks to you or it doesn't. And if it speaks to somebody and they take meaning from it, I'm honored and thrilled, you know, and I wouldn't be like, no, I meant it to be this or that, you know, like, um, so I'm, um, because I think obviously, you know, we, we, um, we're all experiencing seeing and experiencing everything through through the prism of our own perception. So sure. it's you know it's 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 great if it has any meaning for anybody. Well, it's out of your hands once it's out in the world anyway, right? It's 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 open for to sure. being interpreted by whoever, however. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was just thinking. So you come from a punk rock background? Mostly, yeah. I mean, I played in a lot of punk bands and stuff when I, in my teen years and everything, and uh, that's sort of. Uh, I sort of took punk rock and went in all the different directions that that genre can take. And so like, I, I, you know, I listen to all kinds of stuff, but uh, that was sort what, of my what, roots, I guess. What was your original inspiration? Like mu- what, what music did I first get? Yeah, inspired yeah. By? Um, probably the band that really did the most for me was the Bad Brains. And, um, I don't know those guys. Okay. It's uh, they, they were they're still around, but it was um, late seventies, early eighties. They were uh, four black guys uh, playing punk rock, which was rare to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. They played a lot of reggae as well. They were Rastafarians, um, mm-hmm. and uh, they played. They, they actually had a were a jazz fusion band before they moved over to punk rock. So they're kind of um, incredibly talented players, and they could play with skill at a speed that no one else could play at at the time. So their their stuff yeah. is super technical. And twice as fast as everything else. Was this like a New York CBGB's kind it was of thing? A, they were from D.C. Okay. Yeah, so it's... Because, yeah, it's interesting, like, some of the early police, obviously Stuart Copeland sure. is Canadian, and um, uh, obviously the Ramones are really big. Like, when I went to high school at Performing Arts High School in 1980, when I was 13, like, everybody would come in with their Ramones t-shirts yeah, and stuff. Yeah. And I was never... I never went through a punk phase or anything, but I've had a lot of students that were, like, really into rock and 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 you know and and i could sometimes work them the the way that i i could sometimes bring them in as i say is is if you think about the importance of john coltrane and how he affected the doors and carlos santana and 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 um you know a a lot of a lot of the music that was like if it hadn't been for some of that late train that's a huge connecting you know energetically kind of connecting space to um, Hendrix and and, sure. and, and and a lot of that hard stuff and then that led into punk and all of that so 
um, yeah, I, I find it interesting where you can find connections in that way. Yeah, definitely. And I think that like what I just from doing this show for as long as I have and talking to a lot of people in different genres of music, the thing that sort of draws people, I think, to punk rock and folk music and, and some of those genres that are, are seen as more simplistic is the whole concept of three chords and the truth. Right. I mean, it's mm-hmm. you have the basic structure of a song and it, it's what you're putting into it. And that's what people are taking out of it. It doesn't have to be overly complicated, but it has to be, you know, the, the message is there. And I think jazz right. does that in a different way. I mean, it's obviously, in most cases, a lot more technically complex, but it's still the idea of of putting out that message directly and, and sort of meaning what you're saying, I think. And that yeah. comes through in the jazz yeah. that I like anyway. Yeah, Thad Jones wrote a great piece. Uh, he, he was uh, one of the great big band writers of all time mean what you say, yeah. you know, mean what you say, say what you mean. I think great art, great music does that. I think with jazz musicians, I think, you know, like what you were just talking about, three chords and the truth. Yeah, I think there, there's an immediacy there sometimes that sure. people can relate to. And sometimes with jazz, it's almost like there's a, there's a lot of other stuff going on, but it still should be that same thing at the core of it. So um, like you were saying at the beginning, sometimes the perception with jazz is that there's this kind of old timey kind of conservative thing. And I yeah. come from the tradition. I, I love that. You know, I love, love all that, but I also love, you know, weather report and, and, you know, like I said, late train and, yeah. and cannibal latterly groups going into the seventies, you know, the crossover stuff. And, um, I just, I love it all. I love, you know, more contemporary people like Alan Holdsworth, who's a, you know, people like, uh, all the great, rock guitar players talked about him as like the greatest guitar player that ever lived kind of thing. Yeah. Um, very, very sophisticated harmonically and, and melodically, but you know, had, but, but if you're telling the truth, you know what I mean? Like it's just other ways of, of telling that story. Charlie Parker used to, t- to talk about that. He said, there's infinite ways to, you know, to tell and story, to tell these stories and stories and stories to tell. Yeah. And so I think it's, it's just a different way of, of kind of telling a story musically. And, um, and to me, if you're, if you're a high level jazz musician, you can do anything. So when you think about Sting's bands, when he left the police and he had Kenny Kirkland and he had uh, Brantford Marsalis or, you know, um, when Sonny Rollins performed with the Rolling Stones and things like that, you know, um, or, um, Wayne Shorter with Steely Dan or Phil Woods with Steely Dan, you know, so that's, that's, uh, Freddie Hubbard with Billy Joel and things like that. So, yeah, I guess if you have that the, the chops to be able to handle jazz at a high level, you can definitely kind of retrofit that to, to something else. Yeah, and not not only instrumental chops, but kind of theoretical. Like you have to be. I remember James Moody telling me when I was a kid, we were talking with uh, Eddie Chambly, who I was sitting in with. I used to sit in regularly. Eddie had been married to the great Dinah Washington, one oh, of wow. the great jazz and blues singers of all yeah, time, yeah. and and. James and, and Eddie were sitting there and he said, you know, people don't realize we could write a symphony if we wanted to write a symphony because basically to be a high-level jazz musician, that's the kind of thinking, you know, that you're right. dealing with. But it's just, to me, what's cool about it is it's one of the few art forms where what's really happening in the moment is completely, you know, it's about that, that improvisation. It should be completely different every night you play it. And then when you bring in the compositional aspect of it, it's like you, when you're composing, you're thinking the way a painter or a sculptor or, or a poet works, you know, right, or a novelist. Right. And, but when you're, but there's not as many, now, if you see live music of any kind, it's great, it's exciting. But if you're watching the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra and they're playing Mahler's first, 
well, the tempos might be a little different from night to night, but the, the, the notes are the same. It's the same thing, yeah. yeah. Right. And, and, you know, with, with rock bands, even with jam bands, it's a little bit more, you know, it's, it is, some of it's a little, it has that inspiration from jazz and, and improvisation, but it's, it doesn't have as much of that. Yeah. So I, that's the thing I love about jazz is that it's got this in the moment thing, like watching a great drip painter, yeah, yeah. You know, like a Jackson Pollock, and then it's got the other thing where you where you're working on things over weeks and months. Yeah, it's 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 really unique in that in that way. I think as far as uh, musical genres go.
one thing I wanted to ask you about the record too is, uh, um, and this you know sort of connects to, to the punk thing in the sense that one of the things that also I think draws a lot of people to that kind of that kind of stuff is that it's got the DIY aspect, the idea that that anyone can do this, you can do this yourself, you don't need necessarily need the um, you know a master's degree to, to be in a punk band, right? But um, your record was put out by some kind of crowdfunding setup, wasn't it? Yes. So Artist Share was actually the first crowdfunding. It was the forerunner of all of that. Oh, really? Okay. And uh, it was a woman that I used to work with quite a bit named Maria Schneider introduced me to her friend Brian Camillo that runs Artist Share. And she was the first artist in any genre to win a Grammy for a CD that was not released in stores. And that was 2003 or four. Yeah, that's way ahead of and, all this stuff now. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. And so Artist Share was kind of the, the beginning of that. So I reached out to them in 2005 like, you know, I, I, I'm still very 20, I'm 54 years old. I'm still yeah. very 20th century in my mindset. I'm like, I want to go to Tower Records and look at all the records and the CDs and read the liner notes. Yeah. And, you know what I mean? And, and um, so, so the last, you know, 15, 18 years has been, particularly the last 15 years really is since I've been involved with Artist Show. That's where I really was like, I guess I need to buy a computer. <laughs> I, guess I, <laughs> I guess I need to become computer literate, yeah. you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so... So it's been a, a learning process, and um, your artist share was really groundbreaking with that. I know uh, Trey Anastasio of Fish has done some stuff with them. It was, a lot, it was mostly designed for jazz musicians, but there's a lot of uh, other artists and other genres that have that have used artist share. But of course, anybody now can do, you know, Kickstarter or, yeah. or whatever. But but yeah. artist share was basically the beginning of that. Cool, and you've done a few records that way so far right? yeah um i guess this is the fifth cd wow. and i did two live concert downloads that are released and a series of uh lessons and things like that cool yeah i like i like i uh, like hearing i mean I, like you said you're you're still the 20th century mindset I, i'm like you know 15 years younger than you but i, I have the same <laughs> same mindset for sure i'm one of those people who likes to have the physical whether it's a cd a tape a record anything i like to be able to sit down and, and read everything in there get everyone's names, figure out who wrote the songs, and then use that kind of as a jumping off point to, to dig yeah. for more, right? So it's, it's nice to see that people are still doing that uh, and still putting out CDs physically, even though we're kind of in this weird era where that's not necessarily the norm. Mm-hmm. If people are hearing about you for the first time on this podcast, what's the best way to track down more of your music, to hear the new record, and just to sort of see what you're up to? Well, um, I uh, another another recent kind of thing is is being much more active on social media. I was applying for some grants, and I wasn't on Instagram. Okay. So I am now on Instagram, and I have a lot of posts, and I've been getting some help from friends and students and a publicist. Uh, so there's a lot of content there. Uh, I'm on Facebook, um, and I think I'm on on both as John Gordon Music One. Okay. And uh, my website is johngordonmusic.com. You could also go to Artist Share uh, and just go to the homepage there and you'll, you'll see me. Uh, that, that's a way to, to get to the, uh, to the new project. Frankly, my old site needs a lot of work. So <laughs> my website is pretty, pretty ancient. You know, we had a 2006 version and then it was like a 2009 version. So it needs, it needs some updating. However... There is a lot of content up there. There's a book out. Um, I guess I would tell you I had a book come out cool. on Amazon last year called Jazz Dialogues. Okay. Um, and if you just go to Amazon and type in Jazz Dialogues in my name, and it's a J-O-N-G-O-R-D-O-N spelling of the name, uh, you could find it that way. Um, but really, all, you can get all my recent CDs on Artist Share. Okay. 
Um, and, and by all means, hopefully if folks are in town in Winnipeg and can come to the Rachel Brown theater, yeah, seven o'clock on October 1st, we'll be there. Right on. Mm-hmm.